1947, there was a geologist by the name of Dr. John Williamson who was doing some work in the country of Tanzania. One day he found himself in a deserted area, slipping and sliding along a rain-soaked road. Suddenly his four-wheel drive vehicle sank up to its axles in the mud. He was stuck. So he pulled out his trusty shovel and began the unpleasant task of digging out of that mud hole. He had been at it for a while and his shovel uncovered something strange. It was a pink-like stone of some sort. Being a geologist and naturally curious about such things, he picked it up and wiped away the mud. He kept cleaning and cleaning this stone. The more mud he removed, the more excited he became. He could hardly believe what he saw. And when he finally got it clean, he realized with joy that he had discovered a pink diamond. Now, any diamond would be a surprise in that situation, but Dr. Williamson found what became known as a famous pink diamond of Tanzania. That stone was given to the king and queen of England. It was set in a necklace Queen Elizabeth still wears today on special occasions, and it's worth millions. He is famous now around the world for his find, as accidental as that find may have been. This morning we're turning to two more of Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven. In both, a man makes an incredible discovery. In these parables, Jesus once again took some well-known, common experiences of life and taught a deeper spiritual lesson. The two parables that we're exploring, of course, are the parable about the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl. They are told one right after another. And that's because they're short and because they teach basically the same thing, the same spiritual principle of life. And that spiritual principle, that lesson, is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is more valuable than anything else. I hope you believe that. Please turn with me to Matthew 13 this morning. We're going to start down at verse 44 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Few of us today bury our valuables, do we? I don't know anybody that's going out digging in their backyard. No, I wouldn't see them do it. They do it in secret. But I don't know of anybody that's out digging up their yard and burying their valuables. We may have a secret stash of money somewhere. I've heard about people hiding it behind the walls or maybe under a mattress or some other place. But we don't go around digging holes in our yards very often. This, however, was a very common practice in Jesus' day. We usually keep our money in a bank or a credit union. We rent a safe deposit box, or maybe we buy a firebox or safe and keep it in our home. But in those days, there were no banks for ordinary people like us. Only the wealthy had banks, and the banks were not to be trusted. They didn't feel that their money was very secure there. So burying their valuables was normal, especially since Palestine is an area of the world where they're often visiting armies. Not really visiting armies, but conquering armies, really. And there's battles going on. And people in that situation are fearful that they lose whatever little they have. 
And when armies come through the area, what do they do? They usually confiscate property. They confiscate whatever they can get. They'll take your food. They'll take your wife. They'll take your children. They'll take your valuables. Well, you can't bury your wife or your children, so you bury your valuables. (laughs) And that's how you protect what little you have. One of our barefoot doctors, by the way, parenthetically, just recently lost everything because he lives in one of these villages. He lives in a country, Burma, where there's a a government army and also rebel army and drug lord army. So there's several people that could come and take your stuff. I don't think he had anything buried. And so when the armies fought in his village area, the whole village was decimated. He lost everything except he and his family kept their lives. Everybody survived. But they all had to leave, and they all have to rebuild somewhere else, starting over from scratch. He lost all of his medical equipment, all of his medicines, and so we're trying to resupply him. Thankfully, he's still doing the Lord's work. So this is the kind of culture that we're talking about here. When people were killed or they moved away against their will, as they had to in the exile, the ground of Palestine became a veritable treasure house because all these treasures are buried different places. Nobody even remembers or knew where they were. Perhaps they knew of someone in Jesus telling this story that had found a buried treasure. Maybe they themselves had been so fortunate that one day they were in the field. And so this story rings true for them when Jesus says the man's out in his field and he's just digging along and he strikes up this hidden treasure. It's not his. But he doesn't know who it, is, who it belongs to. And so he goes and he sells everything he can in order to buy that field so that he can have that treasure that was in it. But what about the pearl? What is to be learned here? And the pearl merchant that Jesus is talking about. Pearls were of much higher value than they are today. They're still very good pearl. Could, could fetch a handsome price. But in that day, they were considered like diamonds. They were treated like gold. And uh, very wealthy people would try to get pearls if they could. They were viewed uh, much as we would, gold or diamonds. And they were costly. They were costly because it was dangerous to get them. Today we have machinery, we have devices in order to go down and harvest the pearls. You've got to go to about a depth of 40 feet. You've got to stay there long enough to get a bunch of oysters together. And one out of a thousand will have a pearl of, of redeeming value. But in that day, the guy just took a rope, he tied it to a big rock, he tied the other end of it to his waist, and he dove. And he stayed down as long as he could, and then he untied himself. And he hoped that he would find a few pearls if he wasn't first attacked by eels or maybe sharks. So pearls were very valuable. The Egyptians worshipped the pearl. The Romans worshipped the pearl. Even the Jewish Talmud said, pearls are beyond price. So this is the culture of pearls. These two men had stumbled on to the greatest discovery of their lives. And so they're exhilarated. They're in awe. They can't believe their good fortune. And they quickly decide that what they must do is sell everything else they have in order to get what they wanted. The pearl of great price or that hidden treasure the man had found. Now an example of a windfall like this might be anything for us. It might be, uh, you know, in my generation, the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. Remember you get these little notices that there might be somebody show at your door. They're going to ring the doorbell and there'd be a reporter there and a camera and they say, hey, we got this big check we're going to present you for 10 million or 15 million or 20 million. Say, wow, I never thought that would happen. And suddenly fame and fortune come to your door. And, uh, 
it's very enjoyable, I'm sure. You imagine that's happening anybody here? Anybody get, no? Huh, I'm so surprised. <laughs> imagine, though, that one day you're just out digging in your backyard, so you can plant a tree and you suddenly hit metal. You get a little curious, what is that, you know? And uh, so you dig it up and it's this box and it's locked, and you think, now I'm really excited because I don't know what this is, I don't know what might be inside. And so you get so excited that there's all the time you're cutting off the lock, you know, you're sawing through the thing, you're thinking, what is it going to be? I had one experience like that. It wasn't in my yard. It was at Rem and, uh, Rem and Jenna's house. They got a new house, and, and we were trying to put some wiring through the ceiling from the basement to the first floor, trying to get some wiring through there. And so there was a place in a storage room where you could actually look through the floor. And I'm looking back through there with the flashlight, seeing how we can run the wiring, and I see this little treasure box back there. I said, this is really cool. What is that? So I pulled out this little box, just one of those little suitcase things, like a makeup thing, you know, and it's locked. I'm thinking, should I break into it? What should I do? So I showed it to them, and we decided we're going to break into it. We don't know whose it is, so we're going to open it. So we opened it, and there really wasn't much in there, just a lot of memorabilia stuff. We found out it belonged to the teenage boy, the people who used to live in that house. And somehow he thought that was his private stash to put it up there, I guess. A few things I won't talk about that were in there, but there really wasn't anything valuable. <laughs> in Jesus' story, the buried treasure was worth a fortune. And the man digging it said, I have to have this. The pearl merchant was like a baseball card collector that I heard about who got up every Saturday morning and visited the yard sales, you know, and he's looking through everybody else's baseball cards. Any place he can find baseball cards in a box somewhere, he's just sorting through, hoping he could find that one really good one that he needed in his collection or that would be especially valuable to him. And one Saturday, he's going through somebody else's cardboard box, you know, this uh, shoe box of all these cards, and he happens onto a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle card right there in the middle of this shoebox. And when he finds it, he sets it aside again. He goes and he drains his savings to purchase this shoebox because the guy's asking $10,000 for the shoebox. He knows what he's got in that box. And yet he doesn't know because the new owner <laughs> knew that that card was not worth 10000 It was worth $300,000. What a trade that was that day. What would you be willing to sell all that you have for? What, what, would, what would fetch everything else? What would you cash out for? What would you go sell your cars and your clothing and your house and, and any other values you have? You'd drain the bank accounts. You, you'd uh, you know, liquidate everything you possibly could. What would that be for this morning? Is there one thing that you know you would do that for? Are you not sure? Imagine some of us would say, well, I'm not sure what I would sell everything else to God. I don't know anything like that. I wonder if maybe our lifestyle has already betrayed what we would sell everything for. Could somebody else look at us? Look at our life. Look at our money use. Look at our checking account, or look at our, our slip from the bank, you know, and it, it just itemizes everything we spent money on. Or if somebody looked at our time use and how we, we use the hours of the day and the week and the month and the year, would somebody else be able to evaluate, you would sell out for that, because you already have. 
There are three things at the heart of these two parables. Three things I want you to know about the cost of following Jesus, because that is the point Jesus is making. There is something so valuable, this kingdom of heaven, that you would sell out everything to get it. They're all based on one statement that Jesus made in these two short parables. Then in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had. Let's look at that a little bit. The cost of following Jesus. First of all, it is a high cost. He sold all. The merchant had to sell everything else he had in order to get the most fantastic pearl he'd ever seen. The worker had to sell everything in order to buy the field where the treasure he had found was buried. The other things in their lives were no longer important. And they said, what I want is this, and I will get rid of everything else if I can have this. As followers of Christ, we don't buy anything to be saved, do we? We can't. Some people try to earn their salvation, but you know, it's impossible. Jesus has already paid the price for our salvation. It's a gift. It's by God's grace. But the fact is that following Jesus costs us something. In fact, it can cost us everything. As followers of Christ, we don't buy anything, but there is a cost. Following Jesus is not just a small thing. It's not something we just add to our lives. Well, I really like my life pretty much the way it is. I'll just add Jesus as an aside here. You know, like you're ordering at the restaurant. I want this for my main course. I want this for an appetizer. And could I have this on the side? And we treat Jesus that way. No, that's not how you do it if you're doing it the right way. To put it another way, Jesus is not someone we add to our lives. He's all or nothing. He's not a good luck charm. He's not a get out of jail free card. He's not something you do for just an hour or two on Sunday mornings. Following Jesus is an all-out, all-consuming, lifelong commitment. And that's a lot longer than the four or five years it takes you to buy your new car. Or a lot longer than the 15, 20, or 30 years it takes you to buy your house. Following Jesus is the most costly thing any of us will ever do. Because it demands the very best we can give him. Following Jesus may well cost us our friendships. It may well cost us our family ties. It will change our life in profound and dramatic ways if we truly follow Jesus where he leads us. So once a person decides to follow Jesus, there is a very, very high cost to this. And it demands that we would surrender everything if that's what he wants. He doesn't always say you must give up everything. To one man he said, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, then you come follow me. But he didn't say that to everybody. But he does expect each of us to be willing to put him higher than anything else in our life. Following Jesus, truly following Jesus, demands that everything in life becomes subservient to our loyalty and our pain, to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and that may be painful, it may be difficult, it may be trying, it may be challenging, but that's the way it is, because there is a high cost to following Jesus. You don't just follow however you want, whenever you want, because now he's in charge. Now he is Lord. Now he is king of your life. So here's the question. Are you willing to follow Christ if it costs you everything? Second thing about following Jesus, the cost is personal. Here the men sold all that he had. He didn't sell his neighbor's stuff. He didn't say, let me tap you for this. Can I borrow from you? He liquidated his assets and went and bought what was so valuable. 
Now, Jesus has always spoken about what we treasure in life. Back in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of where we started this whole thing, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, if we're truthful about this, the things of this world occupy a lot of our time. They occupy a lot of our energy and our thinking and, and our planning and our dreaming. And we can so easily let them grab a hold of our hearts and minds to where we, we devote ourselves to them rather than to God. This is a constant temptation. It's a rare person that I've ever met who doesn't struggle with this at times. Because we live in a physical world and we need physical things. But how much of our heart do those physical things have? Haven't we seen people who self-destructed when they suddenly got a large sum of money? You know, you win the lottery and their life just goes to the pits. It's just awful because they don't know how to control that. They, they were so eager for that money that there's no way to spend it properly and to be a good steward of that. The cost of following Jesus is personal. It's personal because it's in our heart. It's the cost of, of what is true about our heart. What do we really count as valuable in our hearts? John the Baptist was one time asked, you know, here you are, you're so popular, got all these people thronging to you, and then Jesus shows up and suddenly everybody goes to Jesus, and you're kind of left out here by yourself. And John answered, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Let the glory go to him, because I'm just here to serve him. And that must be our attitude. What does it cost us to follow Christ personally? Well, it costs us, most of all, our pride. It costs us our selfishness. It costs us uh, you know, this desire to please me. And now I'm here to please Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and, and gave his life for me. Philippians 1.21 says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus said, If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. He said, There's no looking back. There's no turning back. There's no playing both sides. Choose carefully who you will follow. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are we willing to follow Christ if the costs are personal? Not about somebody else. It's not about somebody else you know, making a sacrifice, somebody else making a commitment, and we all applaud. It's about me. It's about you. This is a high cost for us. Will we follow him if it has great impact on how we can live. The cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of following Jesus is personal, but thank God, it is also satisfying. Because it says in these parables that as the man found the treasure in the field, in his joy, he went and sold all he had so he could buy that field. The bottom line that the purchase of the land, the purchase of the pearl, cost the men everything that they had, but they considered the trade to be worth it. 
They considered what they got out of the deal so much better than what they already had. They had no regrets. They were not complaining about the sacrifice they had to make. They were not grieving the loss of the things in their lives. They were satisfied. They were happy. They were joyful. How many things in life, your life, are really satisfying? I got thinking about that. I got thinking about some of the things we own. Nice house to live in, nice cars to drive, uh, all the clothing, all the food we could possibly need. And so blessed materially. Many of us are in that place. Even if we're the poorest people of Americans, we're still wealthier than most of the people in the world, aren't we? And when we consider that, I started thinking, how many of these things really bring satisfaction? Not many. You know, there's, there's a, a moment to enjoy a new car. Maybe a few months, and then it gets its scratches, and it gets dirty, and it starts needing maintenance. Is that... That's not so fun to own anymore. There's something joyful about getting a new house and to find a new place to live. And maybe it's a little bit bigger and better than the one you had before. And, and you feel like, wow, I can stretch out now. And pretty soon it's crammed with all your stuff again. And it needs paint. And it needs fixing. And the toilet doesn't work anymore. Just so many different things happen. When you own something, it becomes your owner. It owns you. Is there satisfaction in that? Well, yeah, marginally. What about your relationships? Is there satisfaction in those? Yeah, yeah. There's satisfaction in good marriage. There's satisfaction in, in having a relationship with your kids or with your parents or with your brother and sister or with a friend. But how far can you go with that satisfaction? Because, in fact, we're not supposed to find our satisfaction in another person. You can't put that on them. I'm only happy when you make me happy. I'm only satisfied if you really perform the way you're supposed to as my friend or as my spouse or as my child. How far can that satisfaction go? You see, we make this mistake all the time that we overextend ourselves in our budget to get the new car, to get the new house. And we scrimp and save and sweat and, and do everything we can to get certain things. And then at the end it's like, I did it for that. You know, what's so satisfying about that? But in following Jesus, that doesn't happen. Unless we're not completely following Jesus. Because in Jesus, here's something that is truly satisfying. Here's something that is truly joyful. It brings lasting joy. It's not just happiness or pleasure for a moment but for eternity. And it doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend if I have a better house this year than I did last year, or a better car than I had than last year, or if I have enough clothing in my closet, or I'm satisfied with the amount of food on my table. Apostle Paul said, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, but indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He knew that that trumped it all, that that was worth liquidating it all if need be because he had Christ. Did Paul make sacrifices? Absolutely. Did Paul suffer? Absolutely. But he knew that the bottom line was that he still had Jesus Christ. Nobody could take Jesus away. And he had Jesus not only in this life but for eternity. The kingdom of God was worth it. Knowing and loving and following Jesus is more valuable and more satisfying than any other purpose or dream we can have. 
Dean Shriver said, listen to what Jesus is telling us here. The kingdom of heaven isn't about losing or suffering or ending up with the short end of the stick. The kingdom of heaven is about making a killer deal. It's about the best trade you'll ever make. The kingdom of heaven is about trading hell for heaven. It's about trading death for life. It's about trading temporary trinkets for eternal riches. It's about trading bondage for freedom. It's about trading shame for joy. It's about trading rejection for acceptance. It's about trading your fear and emptiness for the love that never disappoints. The kingdom of heaven is infinite treasure, he said. So the cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of following Jesus is personal, But thank God the cost is satisfying. It's worth whatever it takes. So what's the problem? What's the problem? How how can we ever be dissatisfied or unfulfilled as a follower of Christ? Because I know people that are. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I am dissatisfied. Sometimes I am unfulfilled. What is the problem? Now we come to the pictures. We get an awful lot like the deflated beach ball. We feel pretty flat as Christians. Uh, you know, here, here is something that's supposed to be pumped up and alive and, and have the energy. When you bounce it around, it bounces off of things and people. We know somehow that we're missing something. We're missing the life. We're missing the energy. We're missing the enthusiasm, which is God in us for Christ that we used to have. We wonder why. Some of us blame God for this. God, you need to show up and fix this. God, you need to make my life more meaningful. You need to make my life more satisfying. You need to help me as a Christian feel fulfilled that I'm doing something wonderful for you. But the fault is not God's. It's ours. And He has given His Spirit already to live inside us. He has already given us His Spirit to change us and to fill us with God. But the problem is we are unsubmissive. The problem is we don't surrender everything. The problem is we don't want God taking up all the room. And so we stay deflated. We stay weak. We stay vulnerable. We stay unfulfilled. But if we want to be full of the Spirit of God as this beach ball is full of air. We must completely surrender and submit to the will of God in our lives and make this decision that that what is most valuable in my life, what is most worthy of my time and energy and resources and the cost of life itself is Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. Only as we empty ourselves, of ourselves, can we be filled with the Spirit of God. So, I want to ask you, what about you? What about me? What, what about our lives? How are we going to change this? Do we even know what our treasure is? Could someone else tell us what your treasure is? Could they look at my life, as I said earlier, and evaluate my life and say, I know what you treasure. You treasure... And you put it in there. Maybe your job, maybe your possessions, maybe your family. You fill in the blank. They know what that is because your your thought, your dreams, your energy goes to that. And the only thing that should be in that blank is the kingdom of heaven. 
The only thing that should be in that is Jesus. If it isn't, that's why you're dissatisfied. That's why you feel unfulfilled. That's why you're not growing as a Christian. That's why you're not serving as a Christian. That's not why you're not, why you're not joyful in the morning when you say, Lord, what are we going to do today? And you haven't prayed that prayer in a long time because you've made it all about you and about what you want. The only way to get to where you want, where you want to be, really, is to let Jesus take it all. Another preacher said something I could really identify with. I was reading his thoughts on some of this, and, and he said, you know, uh, I have a confession to make. He says, I sometimes wonder if I really know what it means to follow Christ. I find myself wanting to give my all for Jesus, but I end up only giving him a part. Too often my devotion is half-hearted. Instead of wholehearted like I want it to be, I'm double-minded when I want to be single-minded. I tell Jesus that I want to stay close to him, but then I find myself drifting away. I don't know what your walk with God is like, but I suspect that at least some of you can identify with that. (laughs) I suspect that some of us could say, that's how I feel. I want the Lord, but I don't feel like I want the Lord all the time. The man who dug the treasure wasn't looking for anything, and yet he found pay dirt. He found the treasure. The pearl merchant was looking for a treasure, and he found it. Now, this also shows what some of us have experienced spiritually in coming to Christ. Because some of us were not looking for God. We were not seeking God. We were just doing our life. We were just doing our own thing. We were just going through life as we knew how to live it. And suddenly God intervened. Suddenly God came on the scene and and showed us who Christ is. And we became a Christian because, wow, that's what I was missing. That's what I needed. But I didn't even know it. I wasn't even looking for it. Others are like the pearl merchant, you know, and you are just got this spiritual radar. you got these antennae up, and you're like, man, God, I, I really like to know you. I'd like to know more about this. Where can I discover more? So we're seeking out all these philosophies and all these religions, and we're trying out all kinds of stuff. We're trying things to measure, see if they measure up, and, and they really satisfy us. And this emptiness that we feel inside, we can't get satisfaction for until we meet Jesus. And maybe that was your experience. And you're like that pearl merchant who said, I know a good pearl when I see one, and I'm going to sell everything to get that. There are people in the Bible like this. Saul of Tarsus was a guy that thought he already had everything. He's not really looking for God because he thought he was already on track. And Jesus intervened. Three days later, he was baptized into the kingdom of God. The Samaritan woman in John 4 went to the well to get water. And she met Jesus, and it changed her life. It changed her village. She went home with the living water, Jesus in her heart, not just a jug of water from the well. The man in John 9 was only trying to get somebody to help him see. And Jesus not only cured his blindness, but he forgave his sins. But others in the Bible are more like that pearl. There's uh, several people. There's the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, he's out there exploring, studying, trying to find God. And God intervenes by sending Philip into his life. There's Cornelius which we're studying in our Sunday school class. You know, he's a, a Gentile, and he's trying to find God, but he's, he's clueless until God intervenes and sends Peter to his house. There's Lydia. There's others who are honestly searching out, and God answers them. Wherever you were, wherever you may be today, 
God wants you to know about Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you were seeking him out or he just suddenly appeared. The difference is Jesus. It's always Jesus. And I hope this morning that you have Jesus in your life. I heard a story about two wealthy Christians, a lawyer and a merchant, who traveled with a group that was going around the world. They got to Korea. And they saw by the side of the road a field in which a boy was pulling a crude plow and an old man was guiding the plow handles down through the field. And the lawyer was amused and took a snapshot of this scene. It looked so funny to see this boy strapped to this plow. He turned to the missionary who served as their interpreter and guide and he said, that's really a curious thing there. He says, I suppose they are very poor. The missionary said, I know those people. That's the family of Chinwei. And when their place of worship was being built, they were eager to give something to help, but they didn't have any money. So they sold their ox, and they gave the money to the church. And this spring, they have to pull the plow themselves. <laughs> the men were silent for a few minutes, and finally the lawyer says, you know, that doesn't make sense. That must, that must have been a real sacrifice. How, how could they do that? And the missionary replied, they don't think of it that way. They just think it's fortunate that they had an ox to sell. What would you give up to have Jesus? That's the bottom line this morning. Would you, would you think about that? Why is Jesus not more important to us? How can we make him the pearl of great price? and that treasure in the field worth selling everything to get. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us today uh, not with easiness, not with comfort, but with that, that little burr in the saddle that makes us stop and think about our lives. If someone else could look at our lives and figure out what's most important to us, why can't we do that ourselves right now? Why can't we just stop and think about our time and our money and our energy and our dreams and figure out right now that Jesus is not where he needs to be in our lives, in our hearts. Help us to get this right, Lord, because everything else hinges on being willing to totally surrender to Jesus. Everything about us, everything that may ever happen because our satisfaction is in you cost is high. The cost is personal, but the cost is worth it. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for loving us so much that you came into this world to pay our penalties for us so that we who could not pay the penalty can go free and we could live for you forever. Bless us. Help us to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song together and invite you to stand.